0: Hi, Patrick here. And today we're talking Spanish. Well, about Spanish, about the history of the Spanish language. I met Julie Barlow recently. She's the co-author of a new book called The Story of Spanish. And just before I play our conversation, let me take care of a piece of housekeeping. You may know that The Pod is an offshoot of The Big Show, also known as The World, or to give it its full name, PRI's the world. PRI is Public Radio International and the people who run PRI pay our bills. They raise money to bring you the big show, the pod, and much more. Right now, PRI is running a campaign in which it's asking listeners, hey, that means you. It's asking you to contribute to its global reporting fund. You've heard stories on the pod, maybe on the big show too, from all over the world. And even though Even though we live extremely frugally when we're on the road, reporting those stories costs money. So if you'd like to contribute, there's a website you can go to. I'll repeat all of this info, by the way, at the end of the pod. That website is indiegogo.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O, Indiegogo. Just go there and search for PRI. Thank you. And now to Spanish. Julie Barlow is, as I mentioned, one of the authors of this book, The Story of Spanish. Her co-conspirator is Jean-Benoît Nadeau. They're married. He is a native French speaker. She's a native English speaker. They're Canadian. They live in Montreal, all of which is to say they're completely at ease with living in two languages. It doesn't bother them. In fact, they prefer it that way. Previously, they wrote a book called The Story of French. They talk about that in a very old pod, Back in the Mists of Time. I'll see if I can revive that. And if I can, I'll link it to theworld.org language. And this book about Spanish, it feels almost like a companion piece to the French one. I mean, you've got two European languages, romance languages, that went on to dominate certain parts of the world. But they did so in very different ways and with different intentions from the people who spoke them. Also, Spanish has this incredible moment in history. Of course, French had its moments too. But for Spanish, the year 1492 was absolutely pivotal. It wasn't just the year that Columbus set sail for the New World. It was also in 1492 that Spain expelled its Jews. It was also the year that the Spanish language got its first grammar. And one last note before we hear from Julie Barlow, Sheriff Joe, he's come up in a couple of previous pods. His full name is Joe Arpaio. He's the sheriff of Maricopa County. That's the county that includes Phoenix, Arizona. And though he's been somewhat stripped of his power in recent years by the feds, he made a name for himself with his sweeps and arrests of undocumented immigrants. Okay, now Julie Barlow. My first question for her was why she and her husband, jean Benoit Nadeau, decided to write after French, about Spanish.
1: We chose Spanish probably mostly because we felt there was a lot of interest in the language. It's a it's a huge language. It's a important language in the United States. It's also um frankly, it's we have to learn the languages we write about. And Spanish is a very relatively quick and easy jump from French. I, I learned Spanish to to write this book. And since the language histories are so similar and the structures, the grammatical structures are so similar, they're practically the same, um, for me it was an easy thing to do. But it's a language that's all around us. I mean, we live in North America. It's the third language of North America by far. And um, the other reason was that we wanted to spend some time living in the United States. And this seemed like a good excuse to come to the United States. We spent some time living in the US Southwest.
0: I see. And what were you doing in the U.S.? Were you actually writing it or researching it? Or
1: We live in a context of, of, of struggles between a dominant language and a second language. And we didn't feel we could understand that unless we lived the the same struggle in the United States unless we lived there. So we picked up and moved to Phoenix, Arizona for six months. I had a fellowship there and I was sort of working at the university and researching. And Curiously, the most interesting thing that happened to us was that our daughters, who were six at the time, they're twins, we put them in a school that was 70, roughly 70% Hispanic. So this, for us, was incredibly eye-opening because we saw how immigrants... I mean, it's very much an immigrant city. And so we saw how the school was functioning. We saw the way that the, that the immigrants have nowhere to go in the United States but to schools for information and orientation. And we saw, we were witness to the mentality around Spanish, which is like, it's like a zero-sum game. Immigrants are convinced that they can't keep their language, they can't teach their kids Spanish, or they won't make it into English United States. And this was like eye-opening for us, because of course it's the opposite in Canada. Everybody wants to learn French. French is an officially recognized language, and it's it, it will get you a job in the government. In the United States, there's there's a similar idea, among white people who want their kids to learn Spanish, but the perfectly bilingual Spanish kids are hearing from their parents, you know, English, 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 forget your Spanish. And this was mind blowing for us. It was
0: fascinating. Yeah, so you were in you were in Phoenix. Were you there when Sheriff Joe was doing all of his stuff?
1: Well, Sheriff Joe was kinda low profile at the time. It was it was Senate Bill 1070 that came out while we were there. And can you explain well, what that did? Well, that that was a law, a proposal for a law that was going to give the state powers that are normally reserved for the federal government, which is to arrest and exp- and and send immigrants back back, arrest them for, make it a crime to to be an illegal immigrant or an immigrant without papers in. in um, in Arizona and for for me hanging around I mean I had this coffee group with the mom with the Hispanic moms at the school and we would we would get together and we'd talk about their issues and um I was having this coffee group as this was unfolding and watching what immigrants were trying how they were trying to make sense of this and it was just panic i mean just panic over the course of the spring because they were afraid of being picked up and and sent back to mexico most of the case a lot of their kids had been born in the united states they were in this crazy like learn english and don't learn spanish situation and the parents were like what are we going to do if we take them back to mexico and put them in school in spanish they're going to be they're going to be lost it was it was harrowing to watch. Yeah yeah I mean
0: we've had stories on both ends of that and I went to Phoenix and did 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 some reporting probably around about the same time and then we've also had a couple of stories in the podcast about kids who have gone back to Mexico whose parents have either been deported or for fear of being deported have gone back to Mexico and the kids are really struggled with Spanish once they go back. It's a
1: disaster for them apparently. Anyway so we were there I mean this was all the the experience of living inside the community and seeing how things go. I was fascinated by um, the the idea that people could live in Spanish. And of course, immigrants are criticized a lot for being able to live in Spanish. But, you know, my feeling was um, there's a lot of money in Spanish. And this is one of the ideas in our book. There is a lot of money. There's a big market in the United States is very much the focus of efforts by other countries to get inside that market, that growing demographic and, um, you know, I could see that people could live in Phoenix and enjoy life in Phoenix because lots of people were making money selling those products in Spanish. I mean, there were media, there were there were TV stations and radio stations and newspapers and stores where everybody spoke Spanish, obviously, and in restaurants. So it was very easy. But, you know, people were making a lot of money by making it possible to live in Spanish. It wasn't really the fault of the people. It was a little bit odd to call it a ghetto, I mean, it had been created for, you know, reasons that really boiled down to money. But it was interesting. I was part of groups there, half and half groups of Spanish speakers and English speakers. And, you know, I, I discovered that a lot of the, span, the Hispanics that are learning English had been in the United States for 10 years, living in this kind of comfortable so-called ghetto where they could do everything in Spanish. And um, they just get bored of it. <laughs> and that pushes them out eventually. They just get tired of turning around in this little universe and they want out, you know. And um, it took some of them a long time, 10, 15 years. You know, there were retired Hispanics that had just decided to learn English. And they were just tired of relying on translators and relying on their grandchildren and they just decided to make the move. So this was this was uh, this was eye opening as well, you know, to be inside that community. It was really fun.
0: Wow, what an amazing backdrop to have while you're doing this research and beginning to write this book about Spanish. That's incredible. Yeah. Well well let's let's rewind all the way back to the okay. beginning of Spanish because I was really fascinated. I, I don't think I've ever read a, a history of Spanish before. So this was Real. This is quite an eye-opener for me. And right at the very beginning, um, you have these great lists of words that you use as ways of explaining the, the various waves of invasion and history in the making in, on the Iberian Peninsula. And, and you start off with a list of words. I think the word puerco is one of them, pork, right, which is, I think, one of the words that came from pre-Roman times.
1: Well, there, there's a lot of Celtic words, Cama and Cerveza, there's a number of them. A lot of the practical vocabulary um, comes from the, the pre-Roman, early, I guess you would call them the original native language of the Iberian Peninsula. We, when we wrote Story of French, we were amazed at how interested people were in their really early origins. It's fun. It's like archaeology of yeah. language. So it's fun to go back to that. There's this ancient history... Um, there are the Phoenicians, of course, who arrive on the peninsula in 1200 BC, I think, who named the Iberian Peninsula, and I can't pronounce it in Phoenician, but <laughs> it's a word that that means land of the rabbits, because mm. uh, they're looking around them and seeing all these fuzzy creatures, and they they're stunned, and they call this, th- and then that name, of course, gets picked up by the Romans and Hispanicized as Hispania, and so on, and then and um, I mean, you can look, you could read the book just through the name of the Iberian Peninsula and the different names that are, that people use to call hispanish Spanish speakers in the different areas. It's fascinating. And Germany, of course, you know, I have lots of Spanish-speaking friends who had no idea that there was a German empire in, on the on his, the Iberian Peninsula. And many of the names, the common names in, in, in Spanish, Fernando, for instance, come from Germanic rulers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But the, the Visigoths, as they were, were nowhere near as influential, right, as uh, as the Romans, just linguistically. I mean, the Iberian, I don't know what you would call them, the people who lived there, the Iberian inhabitants during the Roman time, they took what vulgar latin and it would be great if you could explain a little sure. bit about what vulgar latin is and they really went to town with it
1: well um you know the visigoths the reason they didn't leave their languages because they weren't very popular or sophisticated the romans they made it practical and desirable and this is always why languages are transmitted right like people want to learn the language because it's going to help them get ahead in the society and the romans were very good at that and so they very quickly, I mean, one of the big miracles is how in such a short time, they actually managed to turn the whole peninsula more or less into speakers of just dis- different Hispanic dialects at the time, of course, they're, they're not, it's not a language yet. But, you know, the Romans had a powerful and interesting and prestigious civilization. They offered incentives to people who who learned the vulgar Latin, and people very quickly picked it up and dropped their own languages and and went with it. Um, it's interesting because the, the and, and
0: by vulgar Latin we don't mean vulgar. Oh, we no, mean we, a, we mean a kind of colloquial <laughs> yeah. Latin that arose because the written Latin was kind of difficult. Well, n-
1: no one, none of the soldiers who were part of the Roman Empire and went to the Iberian Peninsula, none of them spoke classic Latin. Classical Latin was for the educated elite. They all spoke this type of very familiar Latin, which is known as vulgar Latin, but of course it's not vulgar in the sense we think of it. It's vulgar in the sense that it's colloquial, and that was the language that turned into, into Spanish eventually, and French, and all the, all the Romance languages. And at one point in time, I don't remember the exact date, I think it's around 1100, a different Parts of the Roman, the former Roman Empire could communicate all together. They were speaking Vulgar Latin, which is kind of amazing to think. Um, And then, of course, each of those languages split up Spanish, French, and Italian split up and developed and were standardized into individual languages.
0: Right. So those Vulgar Latins hadn't um, gone their own way completely. So it wouldn't be like a modern-day Spaniard speaking to a modern-day Romanian. It would be Something more akin to, I don't know, various different dialects in, in Scotland or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Okay, and so then the next really big influence on Spanish was uh, the Arabs. The Arabs. And that's where things are very different for Spanish than they are for some of the other Romance languages.
1: Yeah, the the interesting thing about Arabic was that the country did not end up speaking Arabic, I mean, you, you can imagine that history could have gone a different way and that the whole Iberian Peninsula is Arabic-speaking now because the Arabs, of course, controlled you know most of the Iberian Peninsula from 711 to parts of it into the 15th century. I think that one of the key elements in that story is that the Arabs were more or less tolerant of people speaking their dialects. They, they didn't go in and make it impossible or outlaw the, the Romance dialects. One of the interesting dialects that did pop up is a kind of mix of the Roman dialect and of Arabic called Mozarabic. And it was interesting. I was in Spain in June, and I was in a cathedral in Toledo, and this dialect disappeared around the 13th or 14th century. And there's still a little um, place inside the cathedral in Toledo where they have ceremonies in Mozarabic, and people still use it. I thought it had completely disappeared.
0: Um, And these are Christian religious Yes,
1: absolutely. And, um, you know, you can see in the churches in, in Spain which were built on top of layers of mosques, which themselves had been bi- built on top of layers of, of Roman churches and, and things. It's fascinating to see those layers in Spain. We we opened the book discussing that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. And of course the language was also built on these layers of civilization.
0: Okay, so the Arabs are there for centuries and they leave their mark. And then 1492, massive events that affect Spanish mm-hmm. in, in sort of major ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in 1492, you, of course, have Christopher Columbus, who discovers the Americas. I mean, Spanish doesn't become implanted quickly in the Americas by any stretch of the imagination. We chose to go back to the year to speak about the, the exile of the Jews, which, which is an amazing event. And the first time that Spanish leaves the peninsula and travels into, you know, everywhere where the Sephardic Jews went. And Sephardic just means Spanish. And, um, of course, they're in, you know, Eastern Europe and North Africa. There's the expulsion of the Jews in fourteen ninety two. There's also the first dictionary of Spanish that's published in fourteen ninety-two. And there's a curious story because the um, Queen Isabella meets Antonio Nebirija, who who produced this dictionary, and he presents her with his dictionary. He's an Andalusian scholar. And um Legend is that she said, you know, what's this? Like, why would you write a dictionary of Spanish? Spanish is not a language. And of course, it's not yet. It's still a language that's finding its rules and, and uh, becoming defined. But that's one of the interesting aspects of Spanish that surprised us a lot. French has a reputation, I think, because of the French Academy of being the, the premier language of being defined early in its history. But the Spanish language was defined. Attempts were made to define the, 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 the grammar much, much earlier than French. I mean, they date back to Alfonso X, King Alfonso X, who is living in the 13th century. His father is Fernando, who finishes off the Reconquista and politically imposes the Castilian rule over Spain. And then his son, Alfonso X, is stuck with this country where all these territories have been pulled together and, you know, the Castilians have just rammed down the middle of the peninsula and conquered and you know you have arab speak arabic speakers you have all these people speaking different hispanic dialects and alfonso the 10th is just like what do we do now so he decided that what he had to do was make spanish everybody speak the same language and the only way he could do that and this is interesting because it goes back to what we were saying about the romans was to make the language prestigious and interesting so what does he do he looks around for what's going on and what's prestigious and interesting in spain and of course it's all in arabic and he decides to launch this huge project of translating all these Arabic classics into Spanish, which means you have to define the rules of the language, so translators have some sort of coherency in what they're doing. And this is like a phenomenal project. And he spends his, he spent his whole he was militarily the guy was a disaster, but it, he had this great court, and um, you know you can you can still see some of the places in Spain where he had these all these scholars gathering to work on the language. One of the best pools of labor he had were the Spanish Jews, who, of course, hadn't been expelled yet, and were often educated and could translate from Greek and from Latin into Spanish, and they also spoke Arabic. So this is going on very early, and and then it becomes a trend in Spanish to um, define the language, to define the vocabulary of the language, to define spelling rules, which is very avant-garde in the 13th, 14th, and 15th century. I mean, this is long before the French Academy has been established. Um, And of course, you know, everyone's coming to Cordoba at this time in history to read Greek and Latin texts who have been brought by the Arabs because the Arabs had them. And then this influence is spreading to the rest of Europe. And so Spain is really the center, the intellectual center of Europe at this point, thanks to this particular Spanish king who decides to make it his project to translate everything and create a language
0: just back to the or rather forward again to the expulsion of the jews what was the effect linguistically what was the effect on the spanish language
1: there was no effect on the spanish language per se i mean the jews carried their their dialect which became different dialects everywhere they went mostly called ladino and that language spread and you know remained in use until quite recently, you still will hear Ladino in Israel. And I believe in Bulgaria was one place where where Ladino lasted a long time because most Ladino speakers were wiped out during the Holocaust. And Ladino made it easy to identify Jews during the Holocaust if they were speaking Ladino. But it, I think what interested about the idea was, first of all, that Spanish left very early in its history. It left the, the peninsula And second of all, that it was kind of a missed opportunity for Spanish. I mean, nothing came of it. In France, you'll see that when the Protestants are expelled from France, France enters centuries of great prestige where the language is very interesting. It it builds on that presence in Europe. And you see that later in the history when there's these pockets of French speakers all across Europe. In the case of Spanish, it didn't, Spanish kind of went down the tubes. And did not have that that kind of prestige and power that that would have kept people interested in the links between you know different Spanish-speaking populations in Spain, and um, it's one of the curious things about Spanish. It it never reached that preeminent phase that French that French reached you know in the eighteenth and in the nineteenth century. D- um,
0: despite the fact that in the Americas it was just going great guns,
1: which is interesting because the French. Um, managed to make everybody believe that their language was important and prestigious and carried important and prestigious ideas, but of course Spain, for various reasons, and one of them, of course, is the strong influence of the Catholic Church, that sort of cut Spain off from the Enlightenment, and Spain never was able to do that with its language the same way.
0: So it was almost by default, or by mistake, or just a, a byproduct of of empire that Spanish spread in the New World where it was not spreading in the old world.
1: Well, it's interesting. Spanish didn't spread very well in the early centuries of the colonialization. The Spanish weren't really interested in spreading their language in the new world. Spanish missionaries were set up and they learned native languages in the Americas because it was just easier and more effective for converting people than teaching Spanish. And Spanish was not taught. There was no real interest in teaching it. Until, and it, and I, I guess the key period for the spread of Spanish is really the independence movement of Latin American countries, when all of a sudden you have new political entities that have to have a language. And of course, you know, the interest of having an international language is, is strong for a new country that needs to make, create relations with other countries and solidify its link with Spain, paradoxically even though it became independent. So, you know, you see that happening. It's much later than people would think. It's not, people didn't um, learn Spanish until 19th, sometimes 20th century
0: in some cases. And yet in the United States, Spanish has its roots pretty early.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as early as the early Spanish colonial explorers, you know, you have them coming up in in the 16th century, reaching parts of the southwest United States and by the time of the gold rush in the united states you know when easterners are moving out to occupy that land there has been already for centuries a spanish presence in the united states in 19 in the 19th century there were spanish media there were spanish journals and magazines and newspapers being published and you know it's all organized and the spanish missionaries have figured out how to live on the land um ranching culture which was imported from spain is flourishing. And so, you know, settlers can move into and part of the part of the, what would become the United States, and everything's up and running already. And that, that helped, certainly helped the United States occupy the West. And it's curious now, because when I was living in Phoenix, one of the things that surprised me was the very distinct feeling among Southwestern Americans that they have to protect this land, you know, and they're still in some ways occupying this land. And I think it's a just a carryover of the history that they they really were were protecting and occupying this land which you know originally wasn't theirs
0: (laughs) you mentioned you mentioned the desire early on in spanish in spain to set rules for translation and codify the language so that translation Mm -hmm. could function that's taking place again right now in the Americas, in the United, right.
1: In the United States. In the take, United
0: States. Yeah. Tell me about that.
1: It, it's one of the ideas that we got very early in the book was that Spanish was growing and becoming an important language of the United States and that the United States itself was becoming an important Hispanic country. And so we began exploring that idea and looking into, you know, Spanish language exports. We met a cultural attaché in, in Los Angeles who from Spain who said, you know we really want into the United States. we're doing everything we can to get into this to this market and then we started looking at how how the language was unfolding and how the United States what kind of Spanish they were using, whether they were going to, you know use Mexican Spanish or use spanish Spanish as a language for writing and documents. so we stumbled upon the story of the academia norteamericana de la lengua, which is the Spanish Academy of the United States. And it's the last of the many Spanish academies that were established in the Spanish-speaking world. And one of the principal reasons that the United States needs an academy is because the United States does produce a lot of exports and translation for the Spanish-speaking population in the United States. And to do so, you need to have some sort of common standard. So they are developing, this academy is working on a set of rules that are going to be basically American-Spanish and one of the big reasons they have to do that is, is of course, because translators need to know what to refer to in order to produce documents that are coherent and that use the same vocabulary. So, if you take a, um you know, a word like department, like a department of a of a government, Spanish speakers in the United States will use departamento, even though in Spain they would probably say ministerio. Um, so, there's lots of examples of words like that that have become standard American Spanish and aren't exactly Spanglish. They are words that everybody uses and everybody understands. So the Academy's job is to decide between what is standard and recognizable and useful and should be kept as American Spanish and what what is Spanglish.
0: That's very interesting because presumably there's influences, firstly from all of the different Spanish-speaking Latin American countries, and yet also... Does the influence of American culture?
1: It's American English, and there's no way there's no way around it. I mean, I mean, you know, you you don't have to think very carefully to realize that anybody who speaks Spanish and lives in the United States is still inundated with English vocabulary all day long, and um, you know, it becomes very familiar. They use it together, and then it just becomes part of part of what the language is. Um, yeah, it is. It's interesting.
0: Speaking as someone who grew up in a country where language is discussed a lot, where there are two official languages, well, language is more than discussed a lot. It's debated, I think, from American points of view, almost ad nauseum. I don't mind. I do a podcast on language. But I think most Americans look up and they just throw their arms up and say, come Thank goodness we don't have that problem you know <laughs> we 're we're, we're monolingual and let's keep it that way let's get, you know and I wonder whether you brought some of that Canadian sensibility to bear on this story of Spanish and in particular on Spanish now in the United States
1: to be very honest with you i'll come back to the Canadian angle in a second, but anybody who lives in a perfectly bilingual environment would have brought what that brought to our book. And I was amazed in in Phoenix, Arizona, which is very bilingual. I was amazed at how similar the issues were and how similar the feeling is to be in such. I mean, one of the reasons that Phoenix was fun for us was that it really is bilingual. And you see this sort of craziness of code switching and, and back and forth between languages. And, you know, it generates a kind of humor that's really interesting, too. And I, I got to say, it was really fun. Um, the big difference, of course, is that in Canada, our second language is an official language. And, um, I don't know where I'm going with this really. <laughs> what does it mean to be to be Canadian? Well, I think
0: you know what? You you come from a country that's not actually at war over its languages. It's got it's got these two like okay, there are it, it, it <laughs> has its, it, it has its moments. But you know, you have a country that has two languages, there are considerable tensions around that, but nonetheless, the country kind of functions. And does that mean that you can see what is taking place with Spanish and the status of Spanish in America in a slightly different way from perhaps the way that a lot of Americans would.
1: I guess that the idea of having two official languages doesn't freak us out. And it does really freak Americans out, the idea that Spanish would be enshrined and given given official status. To most Americans, it feels like an endorsement of immigrants who don't learn English. And of course, the two languages don't play that role at all in Canada. French, because it's been given official status, it's become a tool of social promotion. And we know that we can, that if we learn French, that we are gonna have an easier time finding work, especially you know high paid work that, that that's done by people with education. Um, so you know, parents are flocking to get their kids into these bilingual programs. The curious thing about what's going on in the United States is that parents know that that's true of Spanish as well. But I don't know why the the, the block at becoming an official language is there. It's for political reasons. It's because of a different dynamic around immigration. To be fair, you know, immigration since the United States is lined up against Latin American immigration can feel like a threat. Two to Americans, Canadians up here, we don't really have anything to worry about from that perspective. I think what is important for us is the question of two languages coexisting as sort of equal partners, French and English and the fear about about Spanish and the fear about kids learning not learning English and learning Spanish, a lot of that would disappear if if it was just clearly clearly defined. Interestingly, um, I went to a conference of Spanish teachers summer before last. And of course, language teachers are always worried about promoting studying language because it seems they seem to fear all the time that people are studying languages less and less. I don't know if that's exactly the case in the United States. But, you know, they're looking for ways to to promote Spanish. And I couldn't help but think, you know, it would help a lot <laughs> if it was a official language of the United States. And there was some funding attached to promoting it, you know, because they're sort of up against the wall. It's like they're working in the shadows somehow trying to teach a language that politically comes under attack so often. It's odd. Of course, French does too in Canada, but for different reasons.
0: Yeah, I mean, the chances of Spanish becoming an official language and promoted by the government, as I said, just absolute zero. Yeah, zero, yeah. I
1: think. Zero, I think. One of the reasons we like to write books about language is that languages, of course, are their own universe with their own references and their own history and their own prejudices even. And they're just, you you learn a different language and you enter a different world and you learn a whole bunch of things that are new and can't come from translating your old world into your new world. And I think that's what's exciting about, about learning a second language. And it's exciting about writing a book about a second language, a language like Spanish, you know, that was a discovery for me, is that I entered a world where everything was new, the history was new, the way of thinking about the language was new? I was amazed to learn, having come from a you know more or less a French background here it 's my second language, but i 'm sort of imbued with the culture of thinking about French that French is a language that 's controlled by one country, and Paris sets the standard, and everybody seems to respect that. There are dictionaries of different kinds of languages that, that in different countries, but the standard language is considered you know the home office is Paris. And Spanish is completely different. Spain was overcome numerically by its own empire, and it very quickly in its history learned to share control of the language. So the Royal Academy in in Madrid creates its standard by taking into consideration all the Spanish that's spoken throughout the Spanish-speaking world, and that's just phenomenal. And that changes the way everybody thinks about the language. I asked professors in universities while we were researching what they considered the most prestigious, like what was the Spanish that everybody wanted to learn? And they just looked at me like blankly, like there's no better accent in Spanish, especially in the United States, where people come speaking all different kinds of accents. It's very much a language about sharing control and about diversity. And it's the first thing off people's lips when they talk about Spanish is diversity. Curiously, French is spoken in amazingly different ways in amazingly different places. You know, every country in the world has French speakers. But the French really downplay that aspect of the language, because the idea of the language is that it's a hierarchical, centralized tongue that's controlled, and otherwise it wouldn't work, you know. Whereas Spain and the, and the Spanish language are shared throughout the Spanish-speaking world, um, and it works marvelously well. <laughs> and, you know, I never would have realized that the thinking could be so different had I not ventured into that world. And it's not the same as English, because English is a language that we pretend is not controlled at all. And of course, we all know it is. I mean, there there are people who decide what's English, and there are dictionaries that are more prestigious and considered more authoritative than others. But we really downplay that in English. It's a curious thing about how we relate to our language. We would like to pretend that it's just out there and everybody uses it the way we want to. The Spanish speakers are not like that at all. They believe strongly in a correct type of speaking and they would be favorable to the idea that the language is controlled and defined. It's, it's centuries of history that, that, that have formed the way they think about the language. And that's really interesting. You need to learn and enter a different language universe in order to really get it that you're, you're really going into a new world. And you got to leave everything behind (laughs) that you think, and you got to like open up and open your mind and just let the new stuff come in, you know?
0: Julie Barlow. She's the author, along with Jean Benoit Nadeau, of her new book, The Story of Spanish. I mentioned at the top of the podcast that I would say again what that website was that you could go to if you wanted to contribute to PRI's Global Reporting Fund. That website is Indiegogo. That's I N D I E. G-O-G-O, Indiegogo.com. Just go there and search for P-R-I. I'll also post that information at theworld.org slash language. You can also catch up with us on Facebook or Twitter where I tweet as Patrick Cox. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. See you next time.